We live in a world of trouble and tears and given all that is happening across the world and perhaps in our own lives and the lives of those we love, we may well be wondering, will we ever know joy again? Will we ever laugh again? Well, the people of Israel, especially from the southern kingdom of Judah, knew all about trouble and tears. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians at the beginning of the 6th century BC. And most of the Jews had been taken far away from home, taken away as exiles to Babylon, really effectively prisoners of war, taken away far from all that was familiar. And there, by the rivers of Babylon, they sat and they wept when they remembered Zion, the city of God. And the Jews in exile and captivity knew that what had happened to them was not just the the movement of geopolitical forces, it was the hand of God in judgment against them. It was God, their God, Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant, who had raised up Nebuchadnezzar and handed his people over to him. Because of their years and years, centuries and centuries, of disobedience and rebellion against God and his covenant commands. And yet that was not the end of the story. For when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, the Persian king Cyrus gave permission for the Jews to go back home, to go back to Jerusalem and the hills of Judah, back to Zion, back to the city of God, back to worship the Lord. And again, it was the hand of God at work. God was keeping his promise to his people through the prophets that the exile would not last forever. That one day they would return. And so return they did. And the psalmist in Psalm 126 tells us that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs or shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Praise for the past. Praise for the past. It's over. It's finally over. We're going home back to Jerusalem, back to the place where the Lord has dwelt amongst us in a, in a special way in the temple. I must be dreaming. It can't be true, is it? Pinch me. But it was true. The Lord had not forgotten his people. He had heard their cries and remembered his promises. The Lord had restored the fortunes of Sion. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Now we personally as individuals may be able to look back to times when the Lord has restored our fortunes and filled our mouths with laughter and joy. When the Lord lifted us up out of the pit in the miry clay and put our feet on a rock and gave us a new song to sing. But notice that this psalm is a song for God's people to sing together. It is a covenant community song. It is a song of ascent. Uh, one of 15 psalms we think were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way ascending, going up to the city of Jerusalem for any one of the three great festivals, Passover, Tabernacles and Weeks. 
So let's apply this psalm to the experience of God's people down through the ages, to the experience of the church of Jesus Christ, the covenant people of God who have been rescued and redeemed by the blood of Christ, the King of the Covenant. And it's true, isn't it, that the the church of Jesus Christ can look back to times of great joy when the Lord has done great things for us and for her. We can think of various times when the Lord restored the fortunes of his people. We can think the day of Pentecost is one such day when the Holy Spirit was poured out. The Reformation in the 16th century was another. The Evangelical Awakening in the 18th century. A time when the water of the Holy Spirit was poured out on dry ground and new life in Christ sprang up uh, everywhere. One such occasion was back in the 19th century in Kilsyth in 1839 when William Chalmers Burns, he was a young man, the son of the minister there but also uh, licensed to be a minister himself. He was just 24 years old and preaching a, a sermon on Psalm 110 and the Holy Spirit came upon the congregation in Kilsyth just north of Glasgow and according to one author there was weeping, there was tears but there were shouts of joy and praise as well. And the revival that broke out in Kilsyth spread to Dundee where William Chambers Burns was doing a locum ministry while Robert Merrick McShane was away in Palestine. And again there was a, an outpouring, uh, Burns himself describes it as suddenly the power of God seemed to descend. No sooner was the vestry door opened to admit those who might feel anxious to converse than a vast number pressed in with awful eagerness. Hundreds of people were converted in Kilsyth and Dundee and people noticed. Uh, Thomas Guthrie uh, was another minister of those days in Edinburgh and he travelled through to Kilsyth by, by boat on the 4th Clyde Canal. And as he was taking a, a journey, a man told him uh, about a local farmer. And the point is that people in the local community noticed the change that had happened, even those who were not converted. And the man told Thomas Guthrie this about the farmer who, and I quote again, who used always to get his turnip fields destroyed and pillaged. But nothing of the kind this year. Religion had guarded them better than an armed force. Nothing of the kind this year. The farmer's turnips were safe because the revival had changed people's lives and changed their behaviour. The grace of God was truly at work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see the wider community noticed just as they did in Lewis in the last century when the pubs were closed they knew it wasn't because it wasn't because the council had pa passed a, a bylaw it wasn't because the presbytery had passed a motion it was the spirit of God at work emptying the pubs and making people flock in their hundreds to the churches and the prayer meetings on the Isle of Lewis and elsewhere in the Western Isles. But the wider community noticed as in Psalm 126 verse 2 where it says it was said among the nations, the pagan nations, the godless and ungodly nations, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel has done great things for them. They noticed what had happened and why it had happened. And God's people were happy to confirm, weren't they, in verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy.
Now just a moment or two before we press on with the psalm. I wonder if we're always good at letting people know that it is the Lord who has done great things for us, who has filled our mouths with laughter and given us songs of joy. Do we, do we say, my loved one, my mother who was ill is now better, that's why I'm so happy? Or do we say, my mother who was ill, I have prayed for her and the Lord has heard my prayers and she's now better? Something to think about. If the Lord has done great things for us, yes, people may well notice, but let's not be shy in testifying to how God has intervened and helped us and strengthened us in times of need to bring us to the place of joy. Well, that's the first point, praise for the past in verses 1 to 3. But then secondly, a prayer for the present. I wonder if you've noticed depending where you're listening to this in the world, but here in Scotland, the robins have started singing again early in the morning. And that's a sign that the summer has ended or is coming to an end because they're mostly quiet for the month of August. They're, they're losing their feathers, they're molting, and they're, they're kind of hiding their scruffy appearance and they're getting their new feathers. And they start singing again as the night's draw in and the branches of the rowan trees bend with berries and the, and the mountains are blazing with the heather. It's a sign of the changing seasons. And there are changing seasons in our lives, in the Christian life, and the life of the Christian church as well. Seasons of joy give way to more difficult testing times. The wind that was in our sails now blows against us. The path that we ran along, maybe even skipped along with ease, is now crowded with thorns and strewn with boulders. And for the exiles who came back with joy to Jerusalem from Babylon, when they saw the broken walls and the ruins of the temple which had been raised to the ground, where to begin? There are enemies all around us as well who are doing their best or their worst to stop us. Now, if you like, the Israelites are the same people, the same team with the same manager, with Yahweh as their God, but the circumstances have changed. These days, football managers are often interviewed straight after the match has ended, and they sometimes say it was a game of two halves. You have a manager like Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola saying, you know, we were the better team in the first half. We kept possession, we dominated, but in the second half, Inverness, Cali were all over us. And we didn't get a sniff at the ball. And if there were no substitutions at half time, you have the same team, the same players, the same managers playing on the same pitch with the same referee. And yet the second half was very different to the first half. It was a game of two halves. And Psalm 126 is like that, isn't it? It's very much a Psalm of two halves. The first half, verses 1 to 3, as we've seen, looks back to the past. But the second half, verses 4 to 6, is set in the present and looks forward to the future. Some things have not changed. It is still the same team on the pitch. We might say Israel united. It's the same manager, Yahweh, their God. But the circumstances have changed. The songs of joy have faded. The laughter has gone. Things are now tough for the people of God. And so it has often been in the history of the Christian church. Listen to these words 
and see if you can guess what year or what century they were written in. In our part of the world, everything is in a feeble condition. The church has fallen before the non-stop attack of her enemies. Oh, that there might be some swift visitation of God's mercy. The teachings of our godly fathers are scorned. What the apostles have handed down is vilified. The inventions of modernizers are fashionable in the churches. Instead of being theologians, men are now fabricators of devious new systems of belief. The glory of the cross has been rejected and the wisdom of this world wins the top prizes. The shepherds are driven away and in their place dreadful wolves come in hounding the sheep of Christ. The houses of prayer stand empty. When do you think that was written? Well, that was written in the 4th century AD by Basil of Caesarea, one of the three Cappadocian church fathers. 4th century AD as Basil contended with the heresy of Arianism, which denied the divinity of Christ. And likewise, in the 18th century, 1778, John Newton, the converted captain of the slave trading ship who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton wrote this, 1778, the times look awfully dark indeed, and as the clouds grow thicker, the stupidity of the nation seems to increase. Could have been written today. Well, in the psalm, it's as if we open a door or push through a door from the green fields of the past and find ourselves in the, the dry and dusty desert of the present. And so the psalmist cries in this prayer for the present, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, like streams in the desert. And the picture is of dried up riverbeds isn't it the wadis which for much of the year and sometimes for many years one after the other they are dry there is no rain there is drought and then suddenly there is rain and they are transformed into an overwhelming rush of water in a matter of hours they flood and when rain comes like that filling the wadis suddenly the landscape, which is dry and dusty, and it may have been like that for years in some cases, it is transformed in a matter of hours and in a day or two. And you may have seen that recently. You've seen it probably in other documentaries. There was a program on last week on BBC4, H2O, water, the molecule that made us. And I caught up with an eye player, and one of the contributors had set up time-lapse cameras in various wildernesses and deserts across the world and that's what you see precisely in a matter of hours brown dust is covered in green and not just grass but flowers blossoming you know we often want the Lord to act in that way dramatically and suddenly to change our circumstances overnight don't we we want him to restore our fortunes in an instant. Basil of Caesarea said, Oh, that there might be some swift visitation of God's mercy. Turn on the taps, Lord. And yes, the Lord can do that. That's what the Lord did 
reviving his people's fortune in Kilsyth and Dundee in 1839 and then later in 1849 across wider parts of the world. He did it in the 1940s and 50s in Lewis and Skye and Uist. Yes, the desert can blossom like a rose just like that, but more often, more often the ground produces its harvest through a patient sowing, watering and waiting. You know, and in the hard times and in the barren times, as we cry out to the Lord to restore us like streams in the Negev, we hold on to that. We also sow with tears. Knowing that, as it says in verses 5 and 6, that those who sow in tears will one day reap with songs of joy. That those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with shouts of joy, carrying sheaves with them bringing a harvest and there we have a promise for the future we've seen praise for the past a prayer for the present and here a promise for the future or perhaps to put it better a promise about the future for the present a promise about the future for the present and this is a promise for the Lord's people And it is a promise that goes far beyond the sowing of God's word. It's often applied to that. And that is right. We know how Jesus uh, calls the, the word of God like a seed that the sower goes out to sow. And there's no doubt that much gospel work, mission work and evangelism takes place with tears. And there will be a harvest of joy. The Lord has promised that his word does not return to him empty or void. But always accomplishes the purposes for which The Lord sends it out, always reaps a harvest of some sort, Isaiah 55. But when you look at what the psalm actually says, this promise is not limited to the sowing of God's word. And I think Eugene Peterson is right when he says that all suffering, all pain, all emptiness, all disappointment is seed. Sow it in God. And he will finally bring a crop of joy from it. Sow it in God. And if the Lord has given you the seed of pain and emptiness and disappointment and suffering. To sow with tears will sow them in the Lord. Sow them in the Lord. That one day we will reap with songs of joy. Was it not for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross? Was it not the promise of his heavenly father that he who went out weeping, carrying seed to sow, the seed of his suffering and his death on the cross, that he would return with songs of joy, return from the grave, and one day carrying sheaves with him, the whole of his people rescued? And Jesus himself had said in John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds, a harvest. And what was true in a unique way of Jesus Christ, our covenant king, is also true in its own way for the children of the covenant, for Christians. And it is the Lord's promise 
It is the Lord's promise of a harvest of joy that keeps us going, keeps us sowing in the present with tears if necessary. If that's what we're called to do with tears, yes, but with hope and with faith that the Lord will do what he has promised to do and restore our fortunes once more. As some of you listening to this will know, I grew up on a small farm back in Northern Ireland and each year my father, or most years my father would buy seed, prepare the land and plant the seed in the ground. And he sowed with the hope that the seed would one day bring a harvest, whether it was a seed of barley or seed potatoes. But his hope, in this sense, his hope was not a sure hope, given the threats from diseases and from droughts, or back in Ireland more likely from deluge. My father could not guarantee a good harvest any more than any farmer can, or any gardener for that matter. Yet the Lord has promised his people that those who sow in tears, whatever the weather, whatever the circumstances, whatever the conditions, will reap with songs of joy. Are you sowing in tears? Sow them in God. Sow them in God and see what he will do. And remembering that this is a psalm that is sung by the people of God collectively, by the pilgrim people of God journeying together on the road of faith, let us, as the people of God, be confident that our tears for the world, whether they're actual tears on the outside or whether they're the tears cried silently in our heart, let us be confident that our tears for the world, for our nation, for our church, for our schools, for our children, for our land, they are not wasted in God's economy. James tells us in chapter 5 verse 11, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord has done great things for us. And he will do it again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise in your word. We thank you, Father, for the times you have revived and restored our fortunes in the past. We thank you that we are able to cry to you as children to a loving Heavenly Father. We thank you, Father, that your word tells us that when we sow in tears, in the Lord, in you, our God and our Father, we will one day reap a harvest of joy. Oh, Father, for any who are sowing in tears at this moment in time, may you have mercy upon them. Your word tells us the cross of Christ shows us that you are full of compassion and mercy. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon our nation. Have mercy upon the church in this land and across the world. Lord, you have done great things for us. Do them again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.